Jeff Carson, who is my fellow lay elder. He's going to be preaching for us this morning. And our text is Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, which can be found on page 808 of the Black House Bibles in the back in front of you. So that's Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, page 808. And I would ask you that if you're able to go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word. All right, Matthew 2, starting in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. And have Jeff come on up and pray for him real quick, and then we'll get started. Father God, I'm so thankful for my brother Jeff. I'm thankful for what you have uh, for him and for us today. I ask that you would bless the time that he spent uh, this week and especially this weekend in preparation uh, for this sermon. I know that you have something for us today, God. Would you give us a correct posture of heart and mind? Uh, would, you, would you help the eyes of our hearts to look up to you an expectation as we prepare uh, for the advent of your son coming again. Lord, um, help us to see our redemption drawing near this morning in this text. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Christmas passage, and you may be wondering, like, 
did he not just hear the passage that Seth read? Like we're in Matthew's gospel, right? This is about Matthew, uh, his account. Well, um, stick with me, okay? I do have like, there is, as, a, as someone who, you know, preaches, there is this like fear in the back of your mind, like, have I prepared the wrong sermon? <laughs> it actually comes to bear for me more when I'm doing the welcome, which I get more nervous to do the welcome. I've told some of you this. I get more nervous to do the welcome than to, to preach or to like, you know, play and sing for whatever reason. And like, often when I'm reading a passage before, you know, we pray and have whoever's preaching come up, like as I'm reading, I'm actively thinking, oh my gosh, I've read, I'm reading, I'm reading the wrong passage right now. Where, you know, where can I look? I mean, that didn't happen, okay? So, <laughs> skip with me. Uh, look with me at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you catch it? Verse 14 says, Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens on his way down to earth as the infant king and on his way back to the right hand of the Father as the risen king. In verse 15, to sympathize means to co-suffer, to have compassion, to be affected similarly. This king is able to co-suffer and have compassion on us precisely because he came to earth as a man, took on human flesh, subjected himself to the same brokenness that we experience in a world affected by sin. If Jesus were born and raised, you know, instead of, you know, being born in humble means and laid in a manger, you know, the kind of the Christmas story that we, we remember, if he were born and raised in luxury and prominence, and had a life of ease, I think we would wonder, like, is he truly a savior for us all? If, is Jesus a savior only for the upwardly mobile and those who have it together, the, the prosperous and successful, those from prominent places with a lot of influence? Or is he truly a savior for us all? If Jesus were born in pristine conditions and spent the rest of his life just kind of keeping distance from the hurting and the sick, insulated from brokenness in the world, we would wonder if he were truly Emmanuel, God with us in every moment. Is he only with us in good times? Only near us when our lives are neat and tidy? Or does he keep his distance when we're solely by our sin? When we're hurting when we're ashamed and ridiculed, when we're sick and poor and needy. I, I think for most of us, in our minds, like we know the answers to those questions. My prayer has been, though, that God would use this passage this morning, our passage, our sermon text, and this sermon to like just push it down, drive it deep into our hearts. And the big idea for the sermon this morning is that Jesus the Nazarene is a savior for us all and Emmanuel in every moment. 
Jesus the Nazarene is a savior for us all and Emmanuel in every moment. And this had two main points that just kind of flowed directly out of that uh, big idea. And then uh, I'll close with a few points of application. So first, Jesus the Nazarene is a savior for us all. So what does it mean for Jesus to be a Nazarene? Well, just kind of take it at face value. I think we can notice that it confirms God, God's faithfulness. You know, if that prophecy is true, then it confirms God's faithfulness. This is the last of five, you know, according to the scriptures moments in these first two chapters of Matthew in the birth narrative section. And scholars call these, uh, these you know, according to the scriptures, call these fulfillment formulas. All right. Matthew is laying out the birth narrative of Jesus in order to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the specific messianic promises prophecies from the Old Testament. The first one uh, comes out of Isaiah 7.14. We see that, we saw that several weeks ago in Matthew 1, verses 22 through 23. That the Messiah would be born of a virgin and would be given the name Emmanuel, God with us. That passage reads, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The second is a fulfillment of a prophecy from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And we see that in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, that the Messiah would be born in King David's birthplace and would rule and shepherd the people of Israel. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. The third uh, is the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. We see that in Matthew 2, 14 and 15, that like Israel was delivered, was called out of Egypt by God in the Exodus, God's son would be protected as he goes down to and then comes back out of Egypt. Matthew 2, 14 and 15 reads, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And the fourth is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 15, from Matthew 2, 16 through 18. That Israel's mothers would weep as a foreign power tried again to wipe out God's chosen ones. It reads, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And now we come to our passage this morning. And again, we see God's providence that has already been a theme throughout the birth narrative in Matthew. And you remember how an angel had come to Joseph in a dream earlier to warn them about Herod's murderous intentions. Uh, see that in, in Matthew 2, 13 and 14. You know, they had departed. When they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. The angel told, told Joseph, like, stay in Egypt until I tell you. And now in our passage, 
It's that time, right? Time to return to the land of Israel. And we see in our passage, starting in verse 19, Herod died, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Okay, I know I'm just like blissed through uh, a ton of Matthew 2 there. Two things stand out here, just specifically in this part. All through this birth narrative, God had been sovereignly directing this family, protecting the newborn king, guiding them through angelic visits and dreams to Bethlehem and then down to Egypt, and now back up from Egypt again. God's sovereign plan from before creation was accompanied by God's gracious direction and protection to bring it about. God's sovereign plan from before the beginning of time was accompanied in real time by God's gracious direction and protection to bring it about. That was true for the life of the newborn king, and friend, the good news is that's true for you and I today. What God has planned for our lives before the beginning of time, he will graciously bring about in real time his gracious direction and his protection. The other thing I think that's worth noting again, and Aaron spoke of this, is just the example of Joseph. You know, both times, right on the heels of hearing from an angel of God in a dream, Matthew records about Joseph, and he rose and took the child and his mother. Joseph hears from God through an angel in a dream, and immediately he rose, took the child of his mother. Joseph's obedience is an example to us all. You know, when God directed Joseph, he rose and obeyed. May it be so with us, Carus. Okay, back to our passage. So Joseph gets up, takes Mary and the child from the land of Israel, but there's a problem when they get back to Judea, which is in the southern uh, region of the land of Israel. Look at describes what the problem is in verse 22 of chapter 2 of Matthew. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So King Herod had died, and his territory was divided amongst three of his sons, presumably some of the only sons that he hadn't killed, had killed when he was uh, still alive. He was, a, he was a bad guy, all right? Um, Herod Antipas was given control of Galilee. Archelaus, in our passage, was given charge of Judea and Samaria. And Philip was given charge of the northern territories. And, and what we know of Archelaus from uh, the historical record is that his evil really rivaled that of his father. Early in his reign, he reportedly massacred some 3,000 Jewish worshipers who were celebrating the Passover. And so... Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus arrive back in Judea, and they hear about Archelaus, and they were afraid. And so he was again warned in a dream, so he took his family and headed north to the region, through Samaria, to the region of Galilee. And so we come to this fifth fulfillment formula found in Matthew 2, 23. 
says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazareth. Now, the meaning of this fifth fulfillment formula, it's not as straightforward as the other four, okay? Um, what, what is Matthew referring to when he speaks of a prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene? Well, multiple ideas have been put forward over the centuries as to what this truly means. And I, and I want to mention three to you um, this morning, kind of in ascending order of likelihood, all right? The first that very few biblical scholars see as a legitimate possibility is to notice that the name Nazarene, you, you might have made the connection already. Like, it's close to a word that you see in the Old Testament, Nazareth, right? You remember, uh, especially in the story of Samson, that to take the vow of a Nazarite was a, a way to set oneself apart to God and included things like, you know, not cutting your hair, not drinking anything, uh, any fermented beverages, staying away from dead bodies. Um, but as, you know, it's clear as we follow the rest of the account of Jesus' life and ministry through the Gospels, like, not all of those things are true. And so, this doesn't seem very likely that Matthew has in mind here that Nazareth should be tied back to Nazareth, okay? The second, more plausible idea is that there's some kind of connection between Nazareth and the Messianic branch found in Isaiah chapter 11. Alright, so look with me at the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the snuff of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Matthew would have expected his readers to pick up on a, a wordplay between the Greek language that he was writing in and the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. But to catch this wordplay, like his readers would have had to notice that the Greek word for Nazarene in verse 23 contains the consonants of the Hebrew term Neser, all right? Neser was the Hebrew word for branch that we read in Isaiah 11, 1. So if that was truly Matthew's intent, it would show that Jesus was a king in the line of David who would judge with righteousness. It would speak to his royal lineage and authority. And it seems likely that this is at least part of what Matthew had in mind in calling Jesus a Nazarene. Whether or not his early readers picked up on this wordplay connection Truly, Jesus, the Messiah, is the branch from David, the long-awaited king of Israel who would deliver his people. The third, the third idea that I want to kind of bring to you, it finds its basis in the way Matthew words this fifth fulfillment formula. In the first four that we looked at earlier, you know, uh, he, the prophecy was linked to a singular prophet. And a specific scripture. But notice here in verse 23, Matthew writes, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Notice he uses the plural prophets here instead of the singular prophet. And this suggests Matthew may not have a specific quotation from a specific Old Testament prophet in mind, but more a theme of prophecy in mind here. So... If we were gathered here this morning for a seminary class over the book of Matthew instead of, you know, our worship gathering, it would be a cruel assignment for me to make you sit here, like, bar the doors, 
can't leave until you find, someone finds, in the Old Testament, the prophecy that mentions the Messiah being in Nazarene, or one from Nazareth. Okay? You could sit here and read through all 39 books of the Old Testament, and what you would discover is that there's actually no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament. What? Surprising, right? So, are we just supposed to, like, okay, well, obviously, Matthew's, you know, lost it. Like, this isn't reliable. This isn't trustworthy. What are we supposed to do with that? Nazareth was a relatively new settlement. It likely didn't even exist at the time of the prophetic writings that are included in the Old Testament. So, what, what is Matthew doing, citing a prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene? Well, like one commentator mentions, paradoxically, the very non-existence of Nazareth in the Old Testament tells us something about what we, would, we should expect of the Messiah. See, Nazareth was a small town in the region of Galilee. It, it held no particular political or military or religious prominence. It was overshadowed by the capital of Galilee just a few miles away. To be called a Nazarene was a common first century slang term used to describe someone from a remote or obscure place. It would be similar to us saying something like, wow, they really live out in the sticks. Or with a little more bite, it would have been similar to calling someone a hick. We get a glimpse of what people thought of Nazareth in the first century uh, at the beginning of John's Gospel. Look, look at John 1, uh, 45 and 46. This is kind of around the time when Jesus is calling some of his first disciples. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, oh, Just come and see. To be from Nazareth was to be despised. Rejected, mocked, written off. Matthew's original readers, they, they would have known this. And they probably would have thought, surely the Messiah would grow up in some more prominent location. You know, like maybe Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship and religious life. Or if it had to be a small town, maybe at least Bethlehem, right? You know, the birthplace of David. But even Matthew's language here in verse 23, that he would be called, it hints at name calling, right? And not like kind name calling, like the kind that in your home you're like, hey, we're not going to call names, alright? Like derogatory name calling. See, there, there are two main strands of messianic prophecy throughout scripture. The dominant strand is about the Messiah as the conquering king who would come and defeat the enemies of God's people and establish his rule. And we've already seen this royal strand on display here in Matthew. There's this less dominant strand of Messianic prophecy as well, though no less significant. That's about the Messiah as a despised and rejected servant, one unrecognized, unrecognized and not taken seriously. So where, where do we see that in Scripture? This understanding of the Messiah being like a Nazarene, despised and rejected? Well, in a lot of different places. 
shows up in, in multiple Psalms, shows up in Zechariah, but one prominent place is in Isaiah 53, which describes God's suffering servant. Look with me at Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The Messiah, our King, was a Nazarene, a suffering servant, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's the Messiah for all people. The haves and the has not, have-nots, the weak and the strong, for all people. In fulfilling this prophecy of being called a Nazarene, Jesus proves he is a, a Savior for all people. All people who see their need for him and call out to him for forgiveness and new life. And if you keep reading in Isaiah 53, you should just read the whole chapter this week sometime or later today. But you see what this servant will do for God's people and why we need him in the first place. And we're just going to let's look at those next three verses, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We were the ones in need. All of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way instead of to God's. But God supplied the remedy. The Lord laid on this Messiah the iniquity of us all. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds were healed. Through his punishment, we can have peace with God. We're celebrating Christmas and what, six days, and joy and peace are themes that we visit every year. But the joy and peace of Christmas is only truly seen as we see the baby in the manger, also as our Savior on the cross. So, the first part of the big idea for uh, today is that Jesus the Nazarene is a savior for us all. So let's, uh, let's now turn to the second part. That Jesus the Nazarene is Emmanuel in every moment. I mentioned at the beginning that I think Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, is a passage about Christmas. I, I want to revisit those verses again. Right? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, the Nazarene, can sympathize with our weaknesses. As I've been thinking about this passage for the last several weeks, I've just been just struck by the humanity of Jesus. 
and how deeply he subjected himself to the brokenness of this world. Like, don't rush past this. The earthly life of Jesus was one marked by pain and hardship. I mean, think about it. Like, he experienced the fear of being hunted and having his parents move around for fear of his life. There were nights, like, try to wrap your minds around this. Just the, the upheaval in this little boy's life. Nights when God the Son, as a young child, was unsure of where he would safely lay his head. And that's just the early years of his life, right? He likely experienced the death of a parent. You know, many scholars believe his horrific father Joseph died sometime between Jesus being presented in the temple at age 12 and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He was disbelieved by his close family members, scorned and mocked by religious leaders. He was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends, falsely accused, abused by those in power, and put to death like a criminal. This is the same Jesus about whom the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Why did this Jesus have to come in human flesh? To accomplish our redemption? Yes. But also so that he could sympathize with the people that he loved and came to redeem. <laughs> we just recently finished, um, I mean, I haven't yet finished it. Maybe you haven't yet finished it either. So if you haven't finished this book yet, it's good news. Just keep going, okay? But it's a great book. Gentle and Lowly is our fall one read. Um, Daniel Portland in chapter four uh, writes this. The burden of this anchor verse is referring to Hebrews 4.15. Is Jesus Christ's sheer solidarity with his people. All our natural intuitions tell us that Jesus is with us and on our side, present and helping when life is going well. This text says the opposite. It's in our weakness that Jesus sympathizes with us. Sympathize here is it's not cool and detached pity. Is a depth of felt solidarity. In our pain, Jesus is pain. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His human nature engages our troubles comprehensively. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. The reason that Jesus is in such close solidarity with us that the difficult path we are on is not unique to us. He's journeyed on it himself. It's not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine, it's also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles, like a doctor who's endured the same disease. You've experienced trauma? I know there are many in this room who have. So is the Son of God. And He's not far off in your hurt. God is not far off in your pain. He's not far off in your fear and uncertainty. He is with you. 
When you play back the tape of the moments of the deepest hurt in your life, at least play back the version where Emmanuel is with you in the room. That's the true version. That's what Christmas shows us. We have a Savior who can sympathize with us in our sorrow and weakness, who doesn't run from us in our brokenness. Jesus the Nazarene proves that God is with us in every moment. Have you been despised at some point in time in your life? So is Jesus. Did you have to move around a lot growing up? So did Jesus. Maybe you were adopted. So was Jesus. Did you ever have people just coming after you? So did Jesus. Grow up in relative obscurity? So did Jesus. You maybe felt the sting of being unnoticed? So did Jesus. Ever felt like temptation is just waiting for you around every corner? So did Jesus, and was yet without sin. Do you feel rejected, misunderstood? Have you been beaten in a brood, beaten and bruised? Have you been used or abused by people in power? So was Jesus. Treated like a criminal, even though innocent? So was Jesus. Christmas is about God showing the world, this is how much I love you. This is how much I'm with you in your brokenness and your hurt and your pain. I am sending my son, the Messiah King, to put on your same flesh, to walk among you in this sin-cursed world so that you will know that I am with you in every moment of your life. So, if you're here this morning and like, you just feel good, like things are going well in your life, know that God is with you in that. And remember, every good thing is a gift from Him. And you feeling like you kind of have things together in this moment, that doesn't hurt your standing with Him. You do this morning and you're struggling. Holidays aren't full of joy and happiness for everyone. Nobody's with you. Be reminded that He sees you. And he's with you in your deepest hurt and pain. If you're here this morning and just feel, I don't know, just kind of blah, right? Relatively unmoved. Unmoved by the word of God. Unmoved by worship and song. Know that he is graciously with you still, even when you don't feel it. And yet, know this. He wants to move your heart. Call out to him this morning. Like we read in Hebrews, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus the Nazarene is a savior for us all, and he's Emmanuel in every moment. I want to close our time this morning with just a, a few brief points of application. One for all of us. One for those who may be here who don't yet know Jesus. And, and one for those who do. First, for all of us. Marvel at the newborn king. As the song says, O come, let us adore him. 
Take some time in these days leading up to Christmas Day to ponder the, like, really almost absurdity that God the Son would come down to earth in human form and walk among us. The baby that's shown in manger scenes in our homes and in pictures all over the place, he didn't come to evoke feelings of sentimentality at Christmas time. He came to be worshipped. He came to be adored. If you've never truly embraced him, embraced him, embrace him now. Second, for those here this morning who who wouldn't identify as um, as a Christ follower, we've seen this morning that Jesus the Nazarene is a savior for us all and Emmanuel in every moment. But those realities are only truly known and experienced by those who are His. So if that's not you this morning, perhaps you're not here by accident, right? Like many in his day did, don't dismiss Jesus of Nazareth. Don't overlook him. He offers the most incredible hope and joy in life, and so even now I invite you, where you are, call out to him. Turn from your life apart from him and follow him. And I would love to talk with you about that more after the gathering. Third, for those of us here this morning who do know Jesus, and especially for uh, the Karras family, be for and with the same people Jesus of Nazareth was for and with. Jesus of Nazareth, he grew up in obscurity. As a man, he moved toward those who were hurting, toward the powerless. He could, he could share a meal with the despised of society, and he could stand before rulers. Toward the end of the same chapter in General Moly that I read from earlier, Dane Morton mentioned that God never lobs down pep talks from heaven. He doesn't stand at the top of the stairs and shout down to his kids in the basement below. Christmas shows us that He goes to them. He comes to us. May we recognize afresh this Christmas our need for God to come to us like we couldn't do it on our own. We're the needy ones. Chorus, let's be a church that doesn't lob pep talks and niceties and encouragements to a hurting and needing community around us from inside these walls. Let's be a church that is for and with the very people Jesus of Nazareth came to be for Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the record of your faithfulness that we have in your written word. God, as we just kind of approach Christmas Day and the traditions and the celebrations that that usually looks like for us. God, I pray you would do a work in our hearts that we would, in a fresh way, come to know and adore you. God, that we would, our hearts would be moved by how, by what you've done to, to prove that you are enabled. You are with us in every moment. Jesus, move 
and you are the king and the suffering servant that we need. God, do that work in us. We love you and pray in Jesus.